توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای سلام in the name of the god of rainbows welcome to woman life freedom all in on iran a podcast series in which we'll go deep in conversations with experts on various aspects of the revolutionary uprising that began in Iran in September when 22-year-old Mahsa Jina Amini was killed in morality police detention. In each episode, we'll unpack an important aspect of the unfolding of this historic moment in Iran. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdus, an assistant professor of media and Middle East studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Our intention is to quote-unquote archive the important insights of our experts here and now, both in their capacity as professional observers as well as humans living through these momentous times. Stay tuned. This week we'll be speaking with Mona Tajali. She's Associate Professor of International Relations and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, Georgia. She's also the Chair of the Political Science Department and the Director of the International Relations and Human Rights Programs at the college. Uh, Mona has a lot of experience and deep research in women's political participation in post-revolutionary Iran based on her first book, Electoral Politics, as well as her new book from 2022, Women's Political Representation in Iran and Turkey. Um, I'm looking forward to this interview. Stay tuned. Now, just the timeline in which we find ourselves, it has been quite a few weeks since we've had our last interview and podcast episode. Lots has happened in the meantime. Too much perhaps to point to, but I guess some of the more important events that have happened that we should be briefly mentioning is that over the course of the last few months since International Women's Day on March 8th, several very strong manifestos have been published by women's groups, uh, feminist groups, both inside and outside of Iran, as well as transnational collaborative manifestos and Bill of Rights. And this is something that we will be talking to Mona about. Another important event, ongoing event, has been the issue and discussions over the enforcement of compulsory hijab. This seems to be a very dynamic and fluid situation where the police chief back in April commented that women will be dealt with severely. And so the issue over hijab has been an ongoing situation where some Basijis or other wise entitled people have taken the enforcement of hijab upon themselves through their, what they believe to be their enactment of promoting good and prohibiting evil. And so we saw that viral video of the man pouring yogurt on the heads of two women in Mashhad, uh, at a deli in Mashhad which really created an uproar about that situation. And both the attacker and the women were subsequently apprehended and are going through the legal processes, I suppose. As far as the political coalitions are concerned, we've seen the coalition of uh, Hamid Ismail Yoon, Reza Pahlavi, Masih Ali Najad splinter and really fall apart. That's been a bigger story in terms of the coalitions that have formed at least abroad. Not sure how big of a story that is for the movement happening in Iran, given that on the ground in the country. I think these are really the more 
prominent stories that have happened very recently last week. Of course, we also had another very important development whereby on top of the four already executed protesters following the uprising in Iran, Iran also executed three more who the state claims were involved in the Khani Isfahan, in the events that happened during the protests in Isfahan. Of course, leading up to the executions, there was a lot of organizing both internally and support from human rights groups from the outside trying to prevent the execution of these three men, Saleh, Mir Hashemi, Saeed Yahoubi, and Majid Kazemi, who were very tragically executed on Friday, May 19th of 2023. That brings the count of those executed in direct response to the woman life freedom uprising that started in September 22 to 7. Those are the official counts of executions. They, of course, do not include the many hundreds who were killed in the streets or in subsequent events and processes that happened. Okay, now let's move on to our interview with Mona Tajali. Well, a very warm welcome to Dr. Mona Tajali. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I'm Mona John. It's very nice to have you on this podcast. Dr. Mona Tajali is an associate professor of international relations and women's gender and sexuality studies at Agnes Scott College in Georgia, Atlanta. It's a historically women's liberal arts college. And she is also the chair of the political science department and the director of the international relations and human rights programs at the college. Her research and teaching and activism have focused on women's rights and empowerment as they have resisted gender discrimination and the opportunities or limited opportunities arising out of the patriarchal structures in the societies she studies, most prominently Iran. But your newest book, published in 2022, Women's Political Representation in Iran and Turkey, Demanding a Seat at the Table, draws comparisons to the Turkish context. And I'm very excited about having a conversation about your new book as well, not least because, of course, there have been lots of changes happening, lots of transformative political changes happening in Turkey over the last 20 years or so. And of course, we've had the elections there most recently. That's and right. so this is a very hot topic right now. You really do believe in crossing the academic practitioner divide. And so your expertise is often sought out by different organizations and different collaborations. And you offer interviews and have appeared in mainstream media. And something else that I really want to talk to you about, and we'll get to it, is your participation in a manifesto that was published back in March. Uh, I believe it was published actually on International Women's Day, right? That's so right. we have lots to talk about. Thank you so much for giving us some of your precious time today. Thank you. Thank you as well for this invitation. I think like you, we are academics and scholars who are super passionate about the type of work that we're doing. So it's really good to come together whether virtually or in person, to talk about some of the topics that are really critical and at the same time to deserve a lot of attention and dialogue. I think mm -hmm. that's what's really important. 
That's right. Yeah. And I know we are today being May 22nd. We are at, it seems, at a juncture in the woman life freedom movement in Iran where a lot of activism and activities still happening for sure, supporting the movement, but on a general level, sort of, you know, among the wider populations, both in Iran and outside of Iran, the diaspora who care about what is happening in Iran, there's a bit of a moment of pause, wondering where this movement is is going. But I want to take us back first, because your first book, which was published in 2011, alongside with Homahut Far, titled Electoral Politics, Making Quotas Work for Women. This is really about addressing women's historical exclusion from electoral processes. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your own background. What brought you to the work that you ultimately ended up doing, which culminated in this publication? Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the issue of women's rights and electoral participation and and this book? Yeah, sure. So yes, my undergraduate studies at University of Florida and my sort of graduate studies with a master's in human rights at University of Manchester, I was always interested with questions of inequality, political representation, women's rights movements, sort of social justice movements. And as you said, I've always also, I didn't really know where to position myself earlier on. I always wanted to have a foot within the activism world, as well as one maybe in the academic and research world. I guess those are the two areas that have always fascinated me. And I always wanted to bridge the gap between the two. And it just so happened that for my master's work at the University of Manchester in England, I happened to, this was at the height of the reform era, the women's movement was really active in Iran. And I happened to have a British supervisor who Mm -hmm mentioned that he's had many Iranian students who are doing fantastic work, one of whom was Homa Hudfar. And he put me into the onto the route to go ahead and research some of the work that's been ongoing. So when I first went to Iran to put this research lens on off, just to try to figure out what are the women's movements saying? What is the reform era? What are some of the opportunities that the reform era but by, by the reform era, I'm really talking about the 1997 to the 2005 era, mm-hmm. the presidency of, of former President Khatami, to really see what are some of the opportunities that have presented and why are we seeing such a vivacious women's rights movement? I mean, if you might remember, this is when um, Islamic feminism was very much on the rise. Within the government, there was a center mm-hmm. for political participation, which was linked to the office of the presidency. They were doing really interesting work in terms of research, in particular on women's rights issues. So I actually entered some of those spheres just as a graduate student, just researching, just to try to figure out for my own interest and understanding. Obviously, as an Iranian American, I grew up mostly in the United States, but I did come from a political family, particularly a political family in which women where they really saw themselves as political actors and political Mm -hmm. agents. Like I would say most other (laughs) Iranian families have had female and male members experience imprisonment, experience harassment, experience different types of things before their political activities. So I always had that sort of curiosity of how are the gender relations when it comes to politics, when it comes to decision making, whether it's at the community level, whether it's at the national level, anything in between. 
And when I entered that sphere, it was really interesting. And I got to maybe get my foot in with some of the interesting work that the women's rights movements was doing. And from that time, I also recognized that one of the key demands of the women's movements, particularly in the post-1995 era, was women's greater participation in the political sphere in Iran in particular, and I would say in the larger Middle East. What happened internationally on the international level was that the UN held a pretty important world conference, which is the Beijing World Conference for Women in 1995. And Iranian women participated in that. And some of the women that I later got to meet that were associated with the Khatami presidency, they were there. So it was really interesting to see how there was a dialogue or a discourse between the local and the national women's movements and the larger international human rights sort of discourses that I, as someone who had been studying political science and international human rights law in U.S. and in England, had been exposed to. So that's where that book really came from. And later on for my Ph.D. studies, I happened to apply to do my Ph.D. with Hamahud Fair in Canada. Mm -hmm. And that just ended up establishing a collaboration between the two of us. First, obviously, a graduate student and a supervisor, and then later on a co-author. And then to this day, we I'm very fortunate to be able to call her a colleague. And so that book really came out from a demand that the women's movements themselves made, particularly women who self-identified as part of the secular camp, as well as those who were who identified as part of the reformist camp, that they were really interested on the notion of gender quotas. Gender quotas are basically these affirmative action measures that are temporarily put in place in order to create a little bit more of a level playing field to allow women to enter the political sphere. And their request from us was, could you just tell us about the pitfalls and the opportunities that gender quotas could offer and when we want to go ahead and negotiate these from our governments, how do we go about it? So that's where that book came from, where we looked at six case studies across the world with a successful gender quota case and a not so successful gender quota case to be able to see that the best quota case is basically one that best fits your electoral system and your context and so on and so forth. And it was really interesting. So it was really written for the women of the Middle East, particularly women of Iran. But at the same time, it drew from cases from across the globe. And it was great that the book was published by Walum, which is an organization that we're, support, we're part of what Wolum stands for Women Living Under Muslim Laws. It was published as open access. And just mm -hmm. in the first few years, we were able to get the book translated into Arabic and Persian. Again, both of those translations available as open access. And we've held a couple of workshops around it. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. while the book did bring about some of the really core debates around gender quotas, the women's movements, as we know, they faced extensive crackdowns. So they weren't really able to push for this with at the national setting, particularly with the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. But nonetheless, I think the level of agency that they had and the level of organizing and how consciously they went around about this particular tactic is quite valuable. It's really fascinating. And you have been part of the trans the volume that you mentioned, Transnational Feminist Solidarity Network, since 2007. And I know in 2019, you were elected to serve as part of its executive board. And so you've been doing this work for a while. I'm curious if we can, if you can give us some details about just the processes and the quotas that you discussed. Can you place Iran for us within the, at least the comparative context that you have in the book? How are they faring in terms of, and I know things have been in flux, but at the time of your research, and we can take it forward a little bit too, but at the time of your research, how did Iranian women fare in terms of their gender quotas? Like what, what was in place? 
place, what was not in place? How would you place them comparatively to, let's say, other women in the region? And certainly you have some examples beyond the region, but how are they doing? What was in place in order to secure them some kind of participation in the political process? Yeah, that's a very good question. So when it comes to political participation, women across the Muslim world usually rank lower than other global regions, lower than Africa, lower than the Asia Pacific, and so on and so forth. And and, and of course, I'm a comparativist. So I see a lot of value in comparative research just to be able to see what has worked and what has not worked, right? Or what are the, some of the tactics that some can look at and some cannot look at? And when you look globally, Nearly all of the countries of the world that have had some sort of a, what we call meaningful descriptive representation, which is maybe 30% and above, nearly all have gone there thanks to gender quotas or thanks to these affirmative action measures. The only exceptions would be Cuba, which ranks quite high, which obviously the communist ideology has allowed this to take place. But the highest ranking country is Rwanda with 64% female representation. That is 100% thanks to their gender quotas that they have. Very close to Rwanda is United Arab Emirates, which just suddenly jumped into the top five in the world. And that's a 50%. And that's thanks to their 50% gender quota where they have gender parity. So, so yes, I think comparatively, it's really interesting. When it came to the Middle East, and when we looked at the literature, particularly the post-9-11 literature on this area, a lot of it was blamed on the role of religion, on Islam, that it's really Islam and the patriarchal Muslim culture that's keeping women out of politics. And that's where my research tried to address. I tried to compare two countries Iran and Turkey, they have a lot of similarities with one another in terms of population-wise. They're both Muslim-majority countries. They have active women's rights movements, but they still rank lower than the global average in terms of their rate of women's political representation, though to different degrees. When I started this research, in fact, Iran and Turkey were quite similar. They were both below the 10%, and then Turkey suddenly increased. Turkey suddenly increased with the coming to power of the pro-religious Justice and Development Party, which has been in power for the past two decades. And so what became really interesting for me is that I saw that women in both countries across the ideological spectrum, so both conservative religious women, and when I'm saying conservative religious women, I mean in Iran, like women that identified as usul gera or principalist, Mm -hmm. and also women of the conservative faction in uh, conservative parties in Turkey, like the Justice and Development Party women, they all pushed for or greater political representation. You were talking about how you talked to a lot of principalist women who from these very you know, conservative political circles yes. believed in their right or you know, had aspirations to even serve as president or even supreme leader. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it, it was really interesting for me to hear firsthand from them that their gender played no role whatsoever in terms of their aspirations for political leadership. And Mm -hmm. so this was in direct conflict with how the conservative gender ideology of the state or even of their male peers contradicted what they believed they should be. And again, this is not all of the women. A lot of them, a lot of the ones that that would speak to me, they would say, we run our households, Mm -hmm. we run budget of our households, how is running the country any different? And in fact, we bring some qualities that maybe some of our male peers do not in terms of 
us really knowing what the, what our community needs us our motherhood itself could be a major a major quality and then the other mm-hmm. thing that happened was many of the women again both in Iran and Turkey particularly those within the conservative faction when their male elites held a very conservative gender ideology they also began to see just flat out discrimination in the sense that you had women who devoted decades of their lives to fostering the party, to nourishing them, to maybe work at the lower echelons of the party. And then when it came to recruiting them to high-level political decision-making positions, such as recruiting them to become a member of the parliament, then suddenly men who were less qualified or had less years of devotion to the political party or to Mm -hmm. the faction were suddenly recruited at their cost. And this is where a lot of that disappointment actually was channeled by the women to really organize and really begin to um, push back. I think one great example of this is when a group of conservative women with with the Osulgarayan for the Tehran district, they really wanted to have 10 out of 30. They wanted to have at least 10 women out of the 30 Mm -hmm. member districts. And the party, just the male elites just resisted. So then a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of women, 10 of them, resigned from the party and then they put out their women-only list. And Mm -hmm. this was a very public way for them to say, hey, we are being silenced and we're just going to put out our woman only list and the woman only list was actually borrowed from from England right or from other contexts where we had women only list where it was a sort of a protest and i think these ways of resistance were quite valuable that we rarely hear from in the larger discussion of gender and politics so these were some of the gaps that i wanted to fill that's super interesting and so currently i mean i know for Basically, decades, the number of representatives in the Iranian majlis, female representatives, I don't think it's ever gone. It's it's never really gone beyond more than, let's say, 15 or so. Am I right? Yeah, it's never been into the double digits. The record that Iran holds is right before the 1979 revolution, which is at 7% female representation in the Iranian parliament. Uh, And then the 2006 parliamentary election, which was the list of hope, that's when they entered. Mm -hmm. That was the closest that it got, which was at around 5.9% or 6%. Currently, it's at um, 5.6%. Yeah, so it's very dismal. It's among the lowest in the world um, in terms of women's parliamentary presence. Turkey is different though. And can you, I want to get to Turkey in a little bit, but can you explain to us why through your research and the field work that you've done and all of that, given that there's so much political activism and aspiration, even among principalist conservative women to have more participation in the political process. Can you just explain to us as, as well as you can, I suppose, why you mm-hmm. think participation is so limited? Yes. And that's where the comparative research was really helpful. I mean, one thing that Iran, Iranian women are absolutely disadvantaged in is institutions, institutions that can truly foster political representation and are run in a way that are gates towards, towards greater inclusive representation versus acting as gatekeepers. And perhaps the first institution would be the role of political parties. Iran has had very weak political party systems. We had a couple of experiments in recent decades with the Musharakat party or Mm -hmm. or the Mujahideen party. These were really good experiments. In fact, some of the women and men who were running it, mostly women, (laughs) who were involved within these parties, they had really good ideas, really good plans. For instance, one mechanism that has been really influential and I write a lot about in my book is the role of women's chapters in political parties, which is a way to have women join the party, to have their sort of 
women's chapters. This is their way they're fully formally integrated within the party structure. Then whenever it comes to a time to recruiting members for the parliament, a specific number have to be recruited from the women's chapters. And that's exactly what Mosharakat was trying to do. It was trying to do this at the provincial level, not just in the major cities. They they had a mandate to make sure that at every single party level, women composed at least 30% of the representatives. And then suddenly the party closed, right? And we know that any single one of these changes takes decades in the making, right? It's never that one individual comes and then they say, hey, let's make sure 30% of every administrative across the party is women, that suddenly it's implemented overnight. But we know that it takes a lot of trainings, a lot of dialogue, a lot of efforts, a lot of lobbying to make this happen. And they were on their way until 2009, when suddenly post-Green Movement revolutions, the party was closed. And then all of these women were either pushed to the sidelines, and then eventually, they, when they wanted to bring, bring it back to the same level as it was, it took a long time. Whereas when you compare to Turkey, they have a very long history of political party organizing. Women's chapters have been pretty much considered the engines of any major election, including the most recent election. One of the key issues of why women of Iran have such a hard time is because the institutions have not been prepared and they have not been prepared in a truly democratic, inclusive format. And I'm not saying that in Turkey it's been fantastic either, but at least some of these sort of bare minimums that we need in order to allow greater participation has been missing. What we have in Iran is basically what we call factions where people rally around an individual. And I think that's what's quite quite problematic because individuals come and go, whereas mm-hmm. institutions can stay. Institutions, mm-hmm. if they're fully well formulated, they can stay. And that's where, you know, the test of time can tell what are some of the major institutions that, that, that can last this way. And so it, it seems like the women's advancement and progress in terms of political participation sort of mirrors the larger national one where there was some progress underway. And with the elections of 2009 and the Green Uprising and the closure of some avenues of participation for reformists at large was also deeply reflected or affected women's participation and the processes that were in place. And so When we look back from this vantage point today, from the Women Life Freedom Movement and the uprising that's been happening, can we look at that point of 2009 as a turning point or change of course, or would you characterize it in that way in terms of the progress for women's participation? Yeah, one thing that's very critical, and I think you pointed to this exactly, is that one cannot talk about democracy or justice without meaningful participation of all Mm -hmm. members of a particular society. And women just compose half of any society, right? So I think that's where women's political participation and meaningful participation is part and parcel of the larger discussions for democracy, for social justice. And yes, if there is systemic discrimination happening against women, then we know it also is happening in, in, in other contexts, right? Ideologically, against ethnic minorities, against religious minorities. So yes, that is, that's what I meant by my emphasis on institutions is that if we have institutions like gender quotas is an institution, the Iranian mm-hmm. constitution is an institution. If we can actually 
go ahead and formulate institutions that have an inclusive motivation behind them, that regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your ideology, you should be able to be an active participant or at least feel that you can have your interests represented within mm-hmm. political decision-making. That is basically one of the minimums. And, and unfortunately, within the Iranian context, we're not so used to this. A lot of this is new. A lot of what I see happening with the Women Life Freedom Movement, which worries me is mm-hmm. that a lot of emphasis is around which individual should we follow or which mm-hmm. individual do we feel represents us versus speaking about how should the Iranian constitution look like? I mean, again, these conversations mm-hmm. are being had, but I think largely we need to just shift our focus from individuals because individuals come and go. I mean, Erdogan was an individual that was absolutely favored by many. He did represent the voices of many And that individual, as we see, is now at least 49% of the population do not agree with him, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where this is where putting all of our eggs in the basket of individuals is pretty risky business. I really want to take it forward to Turkey and your newest book, Comparing Iran and Turkey. But before I do that, I just want to ask you a quick question on some of these regulations that really define or frame the vistas or the possibilities out there are quite ambiguous, right? So I know every four years when the presidential elections take place, there are many women who come and register as candidates and they're always disqualified. And it seems to be that these disqualifications rest on a on some vague terminology about who can be a rejal, a sort of a person of note, which seems to have been articulated to be male so far during the Islamic Republic. And I'm mentioning this because you you know, noted some conservative women who had even aspirations, not just to the presidency, but they said they could even be a supreme leader. That's so, right. But, you know, these things are so ambiguous. Can you just help us understand why is it that women can't become president in Iran? And where are the debates on even potentially a female velayat Fari? Is that What are the possibilities within the given regulations? Yeah, yeah. And the key word there is ambiguous. I mean, all of these ambiguities mm-hmm. are quite intentional. When the when the constitution in 1979 was being debated, first of all, that entire debate of the constitution was quite gender unequal because there was mm-hmm. one woman, Monira Gorgi, mm-hmm. compared to 72 men. So mm-hmm. just in terms of that tokenist representation, obviously that in itself was quite problematic. And that those are the stuff that we need to have learned from, right? To say mm-hmm. that if the constitution is made by 72 people, 72 men are at the decision-making table to draft it and then only one, then obviously we know the results mm-hmm. of that. And yes, and when the discussion around the president came of some of the qualities of the president, yes, there was a big push to keep it gender neutral that anybody could and then there were some that was like no 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 we need to close this to women we cannot possibly the Islamic Republic of Iran cannot possibly have a female president and mm-hmm. so the term Rajal was picked as as a way to keep it ambiguous and that mm-hmm. that's exactly what ended up happening that to this day the Council of Guardians has has just said that we don't when they feel like it they say we don't we don't discriminate based on gender or gender doesn't play a role mm-hmm. whereas in other cases they're saying no gender gender is not a factor as far as the women are concerned women across the ideological spectrum 
They've been pushing to have the term Rajal be clarified. Obviously, a key actor of that was Azam Talagani, who ran for the president not once, not twice, but three times, well into her 70s, to specifically force the Council of Guardians to go ahead and say whether whether Rajal is understood as male or female. And her main point was, am I not qualified? And why is my gender, I mean, me as a learned woman who's been devoting her life to the Islamic Republic of Iran, you refuse to qualify me. So obviously, this is a quite discriminatory stance that you're having against mm-hmm. um, against women. In terms of the parliament, you're completely right to say that a lot of women have been registering to run for the parliament. And again, my research is one of the first that shows that mm-hmm. although women compose only around 10% of the total percentage of individuals who even register, so about mm-hmm. 90% of those who register for the parliament are men, 10% of them mm-hmm. are women, yet women get disqualified at a slightly higher rate than men. So mm-hmm. women just get disqualified around 53%, whereas men get disqualified around 48%. So what Mm -hmm. that shows to me is that women are considered a major threat Mm -hmm. to the Council of Guardians or to those who want to maintain the status quo, that just because of the way some women dress, just because of the way they present themselves on social media, these are all grounds that they could easily be disqualified, whereas some of their male peers are not subject to the same sort of rigorous forms of disqualification. And still with this strict disqualifications, we still sometimes have outspoken women that make it to the parliament. And then that's when we see also their term there is quite limited because then they get disqualified for the next round of elections. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's absolutely authoritarian and undemocratic the way it's run. But mm-hmm. what's interesting is that at least until the recent elections, women have been resisting. It's mm-hmm. really the past two elections that many, the same women that I used to interview that were seeing some opportunities for reform or for change mm-hmm. are now pushing for boycotts of the elections because they're not seeing any hope mm-hmm. from within those structures. And are these conservative women or... Some conservative women, but yes, many of the reformist women, many of the ones who believed in the institution of elections to be able to deliver some change. And I think that's a really interesting comparison that I that is very clear with Iran and Turkey is that Iran's past elections, there was extensive boycott, historic voter, low voter turnout. In Mm -hmm. Turkey, despite the authoritarian turn, we still saw an 88% voter turnout. So this Mm -hmm. is where you see that when I'm saying that institutions, even though Turkey is taking an authoritarian turn, just that possibility of an election made was an opportunity in the eyes of a large section of the electorate to still want to participate in it. Whereas in Iran, I mean, we've had 48% voter turnout, which mm-hmm. was historically low. Some cities mm-hmm. like Tehran had 20% voter mm-hmm. turnout. These mm-hmm. are numbers that should not be taken lightly. And I think when we're looking at the comparison between these two countries, and often the two do look at one another, I think we need to really try to explain why the voter turnout has been so low in, e- in Iran, whereas in Turkey, despite all the crises that they've been having in recent years, elections are still a vital route. That's- that's really interesting. And it seems if you if we could actually engage a little bit more, your research for your book, Women's Political Representation in Iran and Turkey, published in 2022 by Edinburgh University Press. I mean, in Turkey over the last two decades, basically an Islamist Erdogan has been able to, if I understand you correctly, really create more participation for women in the political process. 
And so then the comparison to Iran really holds. And can you explain to us, you talked about institutions and having structures in place that allow that. What can, what, I mean, we are talking in the midst of the Women Life Freedom Uprising, which mm-hmm. wants to sort of do away entirely with the Islamic Republic. But if we were for a moment to sort of, you know, put that on hold for a second and just consider, given that this is the system that is still reigning, in the country today, what could the Iranian political system take away from what's happening in Turkey? I guess that's the first question. The second question is, well, is there even, would you say, the will within the Islamic Republic to even take note from Turkey? I mean, who would be the stakeholders in a larger participation by women? Or would you say, based on your research and your thinking and what's been going on, that potentially there isn't really a will or interest for greater women's participation politically, even perhaps even among the conservative constituencies. Yeah, yeah. And I think here I want to make a quick clarification in my research. In the book, I go into this a lot where I make a distinction between what we call descriptive representation versus substantive representation. Descriptive representation refers to the number of women in the parliament. So that 5%, 5.6% in Iran or that 17% in Turkey at the moment. Um, and then there's the other type of representation, which is called substantive representation. And we understand that to be meaningful representation, that if you're a female representative, ideally you would be representing women's interests. And one thing that is in the literature of gender and politics is very clear, particularly in authoritarian contexts, is what we call instrumentalization of women's rights. Mm -hmm. Political parties, male political elites, including those that have conservative tendencies, they're very good at showing women's political representation as a way to signal to the electorate, to their own electorate sometimes, or even to the international community to say, hey, I'm not as conservative as you think I am, right? Look Mm -hmm. at all these women that I'm showing and look at all Mm -hmm. these women that I'm recruiting. And that's something that we call it window dressing, basically. Mm -hmm. It's a very Mm -hmm. effective way So when Erdogan first came to power, yes, he was very good at descriptively allowing more women. And this was a very important tactic on his part. He had two goals with this. He wanted to show to the European Union that he was much more democratic and much more inclusive. And he also wanted to show to his electorate that he's very different from the Islamists, the ultra-Islamist groups that were basically the party's predecessors, like like Mm -hmm. the Rafah party. And that worked to a large extent. And when you allow a lot of women come in, Again, women know we're our monolith that sometimes you did have very outspoken women enter within the Turkish parliament. Um, aspects of violence against women really did. They had important bills happening within the first few parliaments in Turkey. So it's not to say that it's completely separate descriptive representation and substantive representation. Sometimes mm-hmm. they do go hand in hand. And in fact, we hope that the more women you have, the more chances you have that women-friendly policies are passed. Except that mm-hmm. parties who are not genuine or elite who are not genuine about empowering women very quickly realize who are the outspoken ones and then they very Mm. quickly remove them from power and then we see this Mm. happening in both countries, right? We saw this happen in Erdogan's. As soon as you were talking back to the party, you were removed from your post as well as in Iran. As soon as you become Mm. too outspoken, you are then disqualified by the Council of Guardians. So this Mm -hmm. is something that we're seeing happening. If it comes to any lessons that are to be learned is that women are still a big part of the electorate that both parties feel that, or both countries or both even conservatives or the reformists, they feel that they at least need to pay lip service 
to mm-hmm. women's demands and that women can really organize in an effective way to try to use these opportunities to their advantage to some extent, right? Right. And for instance, we saw this happen with sometimes having vice presidents for women's affairs that were maybe closer to the women's movement. Like we saw this with Shain Dokhmolavardi, who actually came from the women's movement and served in the first half Rouhani in his cabinet. So sometimes these opportunities happen. Unfortunately, they're quite limited because we're working from very limited structures, right? That mm-hmm. even when you had someone like Molavardi gain her seat, she couldn't even finish that first term. She was forced to resign. Mm-hmm. Why? Because she was too outspoken in the taste of some of the hardliners. Mm-hmm. So, so I think women's movements need to be really savvy to really recognize that elections are an opportunity. You can push the parties or push the gender discourse to some extent, but at the end of the day, you really need to have those more lasting institutional changes that that truly are egalitarian, like making sure that you have a constitution that's truly egalitarian, make sure that political parties are inclusive, make sure that you get rid of any sort of filtering mechanism that's mm-hmm. happening like the Council of Guardians. That's very interesting. And that kind of brings us to, a com- to the conversation on the manifesto that you were part of formulating and which was released in uh, March of this year, March uh, International Women's Day 2023. I wonder if we can talk about it a little bit, because clearly what this Iran Women's Bill of Rights, Feminist Collective's proposal mm-hmm. for women life freedom, clearly what it's trying to do is correct some of these issues that you've just brought up, right? Um, structurally allow women to have more of uh, more participation in the political system. And can you tell us a little bit about this? Because following the uprising in Iran, there have been several very interesting manifestos. And I think this is really the most detailed that I've seen from a women's collective on advancing women's rights. Can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? How did these, who, first of all, who is behind this Bill of Rights? Who are the, I assume, mostly women, potentially only women, I'm not sure, who are behind writing this Bill of Rights? And what were some of the, if you can give us a little bit of insight into the conversations that went into producing this great document? Yes, we call ourselves a group of feminists from diverse tendencies, generations, experiences, and fields of expertise, mostly composed of activists and academics. Majority of us have decades of activism from within the Iranian context, from the Iranian women's movement that I talked about earlier. What's important to keep in mind with the Bill of Rights, yes, we wanted to give as comprehensive as a draft And we first published it on March 8th, 2023, but as a living document, as a document to say, this is something for the Iranian population, particularly for Iranian women to engage with, to try to improve. The other thing that's really important to keep in mind is that this was not our draft. This was rather a draft that is built on decades of women's organizing, particularly within Iran. Mm -hmm. So Iranian women, the same group that I talked about, the highly mobilized, politicized women's organizing, women's movements at the grassroots, they had been working on women's charters, women's bill of rights. In fact, when I first started my research right before the 2009 presidential election, that's when, when I was following the women's movement, I saw them actually putting together what they called the Charter for Women's Rights, which was in Uh 2009. And the purpose of that was to basically, to the four presidential candidates, there were four presidential candidates, Ahmadinejad was running for re-election, there were other 
two other reformist ones, and then Mohsen Reza. Mm-hmm. And their purpose of that charter was to say that, hey, the women's movement is quite unified and we have some clear demands. And we want these clear demands presented to the future president of Iran. This is where that opportunity of the election that I talked about, it presented itself. Many of them organized. It took them about a year and they published this demand right before the elections. And then Mm -hmm. they met with every single one of the presidential candidates, except for Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad would not meet with them. Hmm. And basically this was, I want to say a 15 to 20 article charter It included things like making sure that women are part of the decision-making process, making sure that there is free and fair election, free and fair access to education. There's no restrictions on fields of study. Like, for instance, during Afghanistan, there were some restrictions placed on fields of study. So it was just a really clear way for the women to tell those elites that, hey, we have our demands. It's not to say that there's no unity among them. We have some of our common denominators and we want to present this to them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we know what happened after the 2009 elections. There was extensive crackdown on the women's rights movement. Many of them were forced into exile. Many of the women that were forced into exile, they did not cease their activism, nor did they lose their contacts with Iran, right? I mean, we're talking about women who decades of their lives was just devoted to doing multiple campaigns, whether it's the One Million Signatures campaign, whether it's access to stadiums, and so on and so forth. So when the Zhenjian Azadi protests took place, we again saw this as an opportunity to say, hey, we already have some of this work done. We've done our homework. We know what are some of the key demands. Let's make sure there's no ambiguity around it. Let's make sure that the women are, again, feminists with no sort of taught off. (laughs) We want to directly come and say, hey, this Mm -hmm. is what we mean by absolute gender equality. This is what we mean by equal access to political participation, by equal access to the labor force, by equal access access to fields of study, by women's access to health, by LGBTQ rights, by women and the environment, and so on and so forth. So it ended up being a 19-article manifesto or a Bill of Rights. And it was there with the intention that if we're talking about substantial institutional change, hopefully with a future constitution of Iran, that Mm -hmm. when it comes to drafting that new constitution, someone can look at this document to say, oh, well, we see that the women's movement already has one document here that that is to start a conversation. A lot of this was meant towards doing that, not only that Farhang Sazid or, or, you know, mm-hmm. sort of that cultural sort of building to let the younger generations, particularly those who are in the streets, to say, hey, your mothers and your grandmothers, they fought for this. They've already done a lot of this work. Here's, here's a sample of that. And then at the same time, look towards the future to say, how can we avoid suddenly having our fields of study taken away from us, suddenly mm-hmm. not being able to travel abroad? when our husbands deny us the ability to travel abroad, right? So, it was, so it's very Iran-specific, context-specific, where some of the bills are specifically speaking to that, while a lot of the inspiration is coming from feminist activism and feminist global movements. Obviously, women living under Muslim laws is one that positions itself as one that talks both to the international community as well as to local context. So we had legal scholars look through the documents to make sure that a lot of this was legally applicable. That's why we called it a Bill of Rights versus a Charter Mm -hmm. of Rights, because we thought that the articles could be ready enough, that it could be legally Mm -hmm. implementable, that could be integrated into the Iranian constitution. And then we also really wanted it to be inclusive. We made sure that ethnic minority rights were included in there, religious Mm -hmm. minority rights were included in there, even some of the areas that we rarely talk about at the legal level, while we know grassroots activism is, a, is very active on 
such as LGBTQ rights and the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you said it's a working document. So how does that work? I understand this is feminists who've been working on women's rights for a long time. So this document basically was produced by women, both who are still residing in Iran and women who had many years of activism who have since left or who have been part of the diaspora. Is that correct? That's right. We had direct contact with some mm -hmm. of those within Iran, including mm -hmm. some within prisons. But obviously, for security reasons, we didn't want to name any names. And in fact, one of the reasons of if you go on our website, which is www.iwbr or iranwomenbillofrights.org, mm -hmm. you'll see that our names are not there is because we really want the document to receive a lot of attention versus who is specifically behind it. As mm -hmm. long as we know that, yeah, we call ourselves feminists and representing women's issues and demands in all their diversity. And have you already received any kind of feedback on this Bill of Rights? I mean, it really is a substantive document that could very well, as you say, function as a preamble or as part of any kind of new constitution that would be drafted. Yes, that's exactly your hope. So yes, on March 8th is when we publicly announced it. And that's when our website went live. Unfortunately, in Iran, it quickly became censored or filtered. But then we came up with other ingenious ways to be able to put them out there, such as on our Instagram, we have mm -hmm. the pages uh, of the document um, sort of running as a video. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, we have held two webinars thus far, public mm -hmm. webinars, each of them having around 100 to 200 participants from both inside Iran and outside of Iran including some of our Afghan feminist mm -hmm. sisters to join us to really be able to discuss and debate and dialogue. And yes, there were many areas that should have absolutely been improved. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, the earlier version, our women and environment articles were thin because we didn't have that much of that expertise. But thankfully, mm -hmm. version two went through where we had some amazing experts to come and just to tell us, like, for instance, like agriculture and environment go hand in hand. It's very mm -hmm. women driven within the Iranian context. So that's something that with the context of Iran, we had to reformulate some of those articles. So yes, the document is alive and it's living and it's always going to be open to feedback. We have an email mm -hmm. contact, which is called contact IWBR um, at gmail.com, which is where mm -hmm. just asking for feedback to come in. Our Instagram, our Twitter is alive. Our Telegram channel is, is up and running. So yes, we actually have been getting lots of feedback. One thing that's been quite surprising to me is mm -hmm. to see how many men are engaging with this and mm -hmm. particularly professional men where many are like, thank you for this. Mm -hmm. Please think of this and, and improve this. And that. so that's been really good because as a feminist document and as a document that is towards gender equality, I think it's also really important to recognize that many of our population, section of our population, they're recognizing that if you have a women's bill of rights, it does not mean that it only enhances women's status and issues mm -hmm. for the betterment mm -hmm. of the entire society. And I'm mm -hmm. really glad to see that many men, and in fact, that's nothing new for Iran. In mm -hmm. fact, we've had many men who are very willingly part of the feminist movement, but it's mm -hmm. really interesting to see them really engage directly with this document. So yes. We welcome even more feedback. And yes, so we will hold more webinars and we will mm -hmm. advertise them to just have more dialogue around it. That's really great. And thank you for mentioning the interfaces and platforms where people can engage with this document. Um, you know, sort of in bringing it to a, to a close, I would like to ask you where you think we are now with the Women Life Freedom Movement that started in September of 2022. I know 
There have been many conferences, many talks. One in particular that I believe tried to sort of bring in a lot of the different expertise on different aspects of this movement was the Gozar Conference in um, mm-hmm. at Stanford University not too long ago. I believe that was sometime in maybe April of this year, just about last month or so. Can you tell us a little bit about where you think we are headed. We have different manifestos. We have this substantive Bill of Rights. We've had the activism. We've had the coalitions, the many different conversations. Were you hopeful after the Stanford conference? And do you remain hopeful? Yeah, so it's very difficult to predict. I am very hopeful with all the work that you just listed. Mm -hmm. All these different charters and manifestos and Bill of Rights, these are all really important steps. I mean, this is not the first time that Iranians are protesting. and But this is really the first time that we're seeing such substantive sort of thought and dialogue and process go into what I call sort of institution building, right? Mm-hmm. Or to very clearly want to outline some of their demands and some of their interests. I think that's a really helpful um sort of moment that we're in right now. The conference that you mentioned was a specifically meant towards creating that dialogue. In fact, the title of the conference was Dialogue on Transitions to Democracy on Iran. So recognizing that this is the moment where a large section of Iranians, we are in agreement that it's time to see something radically change, right? To move away from the theocratic regime. Where we differ is how to go about it, who should be in the leadership, what institutions should be there, what should, and that's where the dialogue and the discussion are absolutely essential. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's where many of, particularly of our generation and many of, uh, I would say diverse generations, but particularly I would say some of our generation are very interested in bringing about this dialogue. Many of us who are very familiar with some of the discussions within Iran, but at the same time, we are also very well connected. Maybe we have access to to research, to data, to analysis, to institutions, to bodies in the outside world. So I think we have a lot of important opportunities that it would give me hope that we continue these dialogues. Where it worries me is where if we want to rush some of these dialogues and exchanges, where sometimes we might get too desperate and then put our support behind an individual versus an institution building, right? Or be at the cost of a particular section of our society, whether it's ethnic minorities or whether it's religious minorities. So that's where some of the worry happens. And I do know that, you know, um, I I know you talked to Asif Bayat recently, Mm -hmm. where he has the term like revolutions. I think this is where we're at right now, that we really need to think about it. Are we after a revolution? Do we want something quick change or do we rather want something that is much more thought through? In terms of the women's movement, Mm -hmm. where I get a lot of hope, and that's where I can speak on behalf of because I'm better connected to them, is -hmm. that a lot of work has been done on behalf of the feminists and the women's movement in Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very well aware of what they want and what trajectory the country needs to take. They do not need any particular expertise coming from the outside or coming from the UN. Mm -hmm. So so I think that's where one of my hopes is that because I know that they're just so savvy and so aware and so well connected um mm-hmm. you know they just need our support in terms of yeah in terms of continuing that work it will probably take some time but i would more rather have the more gradual substantive change versus something quick that might not um mm-hmm. lead into this this radical pluralist egalitarian democratic change that we really want to see in iran 
Yeah. And I think the Bill of Rights reflects that. The first three articles being, the first being constitutional assembly, making sure that there's representation across the board. The second article, I suppose this is one, the more interesting one, I think, state secularism, which in in all the diverse thinking on change in Iran, I think this is something that people mostly agree on, right? That there yes. needs to be a separation between state and religion simply because of the kind of experience that we've had over the last 44 years. And the third being safeguarding human rights, respecting all the great diversity of Iran in terms of territory, race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, religion, and other parts of identity. And I think this is really worth sort of spending some time with this document. Uh, Mona Tajali, um, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for giving us of your time and expertise. It's been really wonderful talking to you and just learning more about these different vectors of Iranian politics as they intersect with women's rights and the women's movement. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing and to playing a key role in really fostering these negotiations and these dialogues and these discussions, which are absolutely essential. And that's another hopeful moment that I have where that the women life freedom moment, movement, whatever we want to call it, is such an important opportunity that we need to really take advantage of and to really highlight some of our key demands in terms of equality, in terms of justice, in terms of pluralism. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully we will be a model just not for the region, but worldwide. I very much hope so, along with 80-something million Iranians. Yep. Thank you so much. Dr. Monota Jali is Associate Professor of International Relations and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Agnes Scott College. She is the Chair of the Political Science Department and the Director of the International Relations and Human Rights Programs at the College. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you. You were listening to an episode of Woman Life Freedom. All In on Iran, broadcast to you from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdust. Until next time, Jinjian Azadi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Zendegi Azadi.